a president's duty. Let's play hardball. Good evening. I'm Chris Matthews in Washington. U.S. markets had another terrible day with the Dow Jones dropping nearly 1,200 points over global concerns about the coronavirus. Today's drop is the biggest one-day point decline in history, and it's the worst week for the market since the financial crisis back in 2008. Amid the growing crisis, Trump is facing intense scrutiny and a growing credibility crisis. Aides to the president tell the Associated Press that the more pressing concern at the White House is not the possibility of the widespread outbreak, but the downstream effects of the virus on the global economy and public sentiment. Moments ago, President Trump praised his own handling of the crisis and tried to downplay fears about the spread of it. We're almost all better now, uh, but we do things and it would be really nice if we could be recognized by the press fairly. And you know what? It would be really nice that if we do something wrong, we get criticized by the press. But I gave a press conference yesterday that was really a, a very good press conference. And some people thought it was great. And most of you people saw it. It was covered live. One of the advantages is that I get covered live all the time. And I like that better because they can't chop it up and make it live. I'd rather be live. But it was a very good press conference. And basically, it was a calming press conference. It was a conference to say we're doing well. At the same time, President Trump was trying to assure the public that the spread of the virus was under control. A new case was confirmed in California of a person who had not traveled to affected areas. In that state, California is currently monitoring 8,400 people who had traveled to affected countries, 33 of which have been tested positive. Globally, seven new countries, including Brazil, Greece, and Georgia, have reported cases in just the past 24 hours. Here in the U.S., the CDC has warned that the spread of the virus is inevitable. Well, during his press conference yesterday, President Trump continued to make statements that contradicted his own health officials. The vaccine is coming along well, and in speaking to the doctors, we think this is something that we can develop fairly rapidly. Although this is the fastest we have ever gone from a sequence of a virus to a trial, it still would not be any applicable to the epidemic unless we really wait about a year to a year and a half. We're ready to adapt and we're ready to do whatever we have to as the disease spreads, if it spreads. We do expect more cases, um, and this is a good time to prepare. Do you trust your health officials to give you good information, or oh, do you sure. trust your own instincts more? I don't think I have. They've said it could be worse, and I've said it could you be worse. You said you don't too. believe it's inevitable. I also it contradicts think, with the no, CDC. I don't think it's inevitable. And tonight, breaking news that is sending alarms about how the government is responding to the virus. According to The New York Times, a whistleblower is claiming that federal personnel may have been unnecessarily exposed to the coronavirus and, quote, then scattered into the general population. For more, I'm joined by U.S. Congressman Ami Barry, a Democrat from California. He's a physician and is the former chief medical officer for Sacramento County. Dr. Natalie Azar is MSNBC medical contributor. And Aaron Blake is senior political reporter with The Washington Post. I want to go to the congressman first. How would you uh, counter or how would you compare the president's calming words, as he put it in yesterday's press conference, with the medical information itself? 
Look, the president's got a bit of a credibility problem here. You know, Sacramento County is my home district, and I talked to my former colleagues at UC Davis. Look, this was a patient who was being cared for in Solano County um, who is positive now. So you've had healthcare workers exposed and others that we now have to get down there and quickly trace. You know, the other big thing was when this patient arrived at UC Davis last week, they asked to test him for coronavirus. You know, they said, no, he doesn't have it. Well, lo and behold, we find out that he did have, that this patient does have coronavirus. Well, you know, we've got to revive our testing criteria. It also took 72 hours to get the test results back. We've got to do better than this. How do you get it without having been affected by someone who has it in the area where it's, it's prominent or prevalent? You know, that, that is called community transmission, and you've seen it happen in other countries. This is the first case of community transmission where it's not um, because someone traveled to the region or has knowingly come, um, been exposed to someone who we know has a diagnosis of coronavirus. That's what we've been worried about. And again, we've got to be very careful here. We've thought that this was going to pop up. You've heard CDC officials suggest that you might have community cases. This is the first one we know about. What's community case mean in, in, in popular jar- jargon? What would it mean? Does it mean? What does it mean? How do you get it if you, you don't know, get it from someone it, who has it? In popular jargon, you know, you could, we, we know the virus lives on um, inanimate objects. We don't know exactly how long I it see. could be there. They could pick it up from that. They could pick it up from casual exposure. They could pick it up from asymptomatic patients who don't know they have the disease and come in casual contact. That's, you know, we don't know exactly where this patient picked up the coronavirus. We do know that they were very sick, that they had to be intubated and put on a ventilator and then sent up to UC Davis. Again, kudos to the physicians at UC Davis. They took infection control measures. Um, I think they're going to be okay. But I worry about the healthcare workers who are at the initial hospital who, you know, you're putting a tube down someone's throat. You're going to get exposed to a lot of respiratory droplets and secretions. And if you don't think this person has coronavirus, you know, you probably just got exposed. Wow. What did you make of the president's casual comment? I have no idea where he gets his advice, but he was giving advice to our country of 330 million people. And he said, don't touch railings unless you have to. What did you make of that bit of advice? You know, I don't think that's the right health measure. I am glad that um, we're encouraging folks to wash their hands and be vigilant and be cautious and take the same measures that they would to try to prevent the flu. But We've still got a lot to learn about this virus. And, you know, again, I think the president should be very careful here. Well, as I mentioned, the New York Times reporting right now that federal health employees have may have interacted with Americans uh, generally in the public in the in the world out there outside their own offices, possibly exposed to the coronavirus without proper training or equipment. The exposed staff members, quote, move freely around and off the bases with at least one person staying in a nearby hotel and leaving California on a commercial flight. The news comes from a whistleblower report filed with the Office of Special Counsel and alleges that the team was improperly deployed to two military bases in California to assist the processing of Americans who had been evacuated from coronavirus hot zones in China and elsewhere. Again, according to The New York Times, federal officials admonished the staff members and deemed the complaint as a nuisance. Uh, what do we make of that, Dr. Azari? What do you make of the uh, of uh, Azari? What do you make of the this kind of a is this just going to happen? These cases where you're going to hear about disturbing news that someone may have gotten the disease or exposed to it and didn't take it seriously. 
Well, it, it is certainly concerning, Chris, that anybody would come into contact with people who are in quarantine who haven't had the proper training. I mean, this is something that, uh, you know, hospitals across the country have been, number one, implementing for years and have, you know, even with influenza, have a protocol. And we have a protocol for, um, you know, respiratory uh, isolation and precautions and things like that. And it takes time to train personnel properly. And, and uh, you know, they have to be fitted with the uh, respirators, the particulate respirators. So you really, it, it is not at all appropriate to send people in um, who may be exposed, who haven't had the proper training and who don't have the appropriate uh, personal protective equipment. I mean, I, I can't comment specifically on what happened here. I'm, I'm hearing it, you know, as you, as we all are um, right. in this whistleblower account. Well, let me ask you something that's useful to the viewers right now. This is generally a political show, but I do want to be a, have some value to them in terms of their personal protection here. You know, we hear a lot during the flu seasons, get your flu shots, go to CVS, wherever you get one, maybe free, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. People are always worn, take it seriously. Then the other day, the president threw out that number of 25,000 to 69,000 a year on average or somewhere in that range mm -hmm. of people die mm -hmm. from flu. Most people, I was surprised at that big number. But of course, there's a country of 330 million people. Right. You know, as if it's not you, it's someone else, but, you know, a lot of people. So what, what would you say as a physician as to what people should do right now if they're concerned? Well, you bring up the flu shot, and we actually, I just was discussing this with patients of, of mine yesterday and today, that, you know, having, getting your flu shot, getting your pneumonia vaccine is incredibly important in general for, for populations in whom it's indicated, but especially now, because once you have one respiratory infection, for example, if you do get the flu, you are theoretically more susceptible to developing, you know, something like coronavirus and vice versa. So, um, and, and to your point about the lethality of flu, or, or at least the number of fatalities that we have every country, uh, every year in this country, we have thousands of deaths every single year from the flu in this country. We have, we have around 29 million cases of flu. We're going to get the updated numbers tomorrow. 29 million cases of flu already. But the scales are very different. You know, we have a smaller number of coronavirus cases. Um, the fatality of coronavirus, at least with the numbers we're working on, we're working with right now, seems to be a little bit higher than influenza, which um, is certainly disturbing because if the number of coronavirus cases increases and that fatality rate of 2% is in fact valid, we're going to see a tremendous number of fatalities from the coronavirus. Well, moments ago, President Trump himself said that he would welcome criticism if he deserved it, but he assured Americans that the virus could disappear. If we were doing a bad job, we should also be criticized. But we have done an incredible job. We're going to continue. It's going to disappear. One day, it's like a miracle. It will disappear. And from our shores, we've, you know, it could get worse before it gets better. It could maybe go away. We'll see what happens. Nobody really knows. The fact is, the greatest experts have spoken to all. Nobody really knows. Well, in the reporting on this, we have to be macro. The whole country, as I said, 330 million people here, some of them for good reason, worried. Some people not worried. But the politics of this seems to always go back to the president's credibility because he would argue about ridiculous things like crowd sizes. And here he is, you know, saying things that was the Democratic's debate, the presidential debate, which we all covered on Tuesday night that caused the stock market to go down a thousand points on Monday. And on Tuesday, two days, actually more than hours before the Democratic debate, which was a nonsensical claim. Yeah, so it's one thing to have 16,000 false or misleading claims, which the president is up to right now. Many of those things, as you mentioned, are trivial, crowd-sized stuff. They don't really 
affect people's lives. Two things come to mind here. One is two months ago when uh, the U.S. government took out Qasem Soleimani, the president said there was an imminent threat here. That was the justification used for the strike. We found out later that that wasn't actually in the White House's report here. The other thing is when we had the hurricane in Florida and Alabama, the president said Alabama is going to be hit here. Uh, I have it on good authority. Well, it turned out that wasn't in the forecast at that point. He, of course, used the map. He drew the Sharpie on the map and showed how it could have potentially because there was Alabama. a high political race there at the time. He right, wanted to right. show his interest in it. But even something like that, he yeah. was telling people who were not in harm's way that they were in harm's way. The risk wasn't that people wouldn't take something seriously. Here it's reversed. We have a situation where people could potentially be exposed to something. They're being told by their president that maybe it's not going to be a big deal. Maybe they won't take it as seriously. There is a huge both societal and political risk in that. Right now, he seems much more concerned about the stock market momentarily. But a short-term correction is a very small price to pay for uh, uh, you know people being safe and for the ultimate uh, uh, risk of this not being realized. So you think he's concerned more about the bad PR in terms of the election than he is about the reality facing the country? The president has shown over and over again that he takes the stock market very personally. He points to it when it's up. He uh, points elsewhere when it's down. And that's pretty much what he's doing right now. He did not blaming the Democratic debate on Tuesday night. I'm going to go over that again because the time travel involved in that is insane. Anyway, the New York Times reporting that the White House is now looking to, quote, tighten control of coronavirus messaging. Catch that word messaging by government officials, directing them to clear all statements and public appearance with the office of Vice President Mike Pence. Dr. Anthony Fauci told associates that the White House had instructed him not to say anything else without clearance. And early this week, aides told The Washington Post that President Trump was angered by what he saw as, quote, extreme warnings from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Congressman, I guess this gets back to the question we always talk about. How free a society do we have? Uh, how much does the government of the United States care about us more than it cares about the politicians? These are fundamental American questions. We have to be alert to them. And here we are again with the word going out that all government officials who know what they're talking about have been gagged so that the president who doesn't know what he's talking about can speak for them. Yeah, it's very disgusting. Concerning, You know, I, as a member of Congress, don't work for the president of the United States. I work for the people of my district, as we all do as members of Congress. We've got to step up in a nonpartisan way and make sure the citizens of this country get the accurate information. It is disturbing if he's going to try to muzzle Dr. Anthony Fauci, who's a legend in the healthcare community, right. for his work in HIV, et cetera. Let the scientists discuss the science and put the facts out there. And our first priority has to be protecting the American public, not worrying about the stock market or worrying about um, a presidential re-election. That should be the president's first priority. And it's disappointing that that's not what we're hearing. Yeah, I'm afraid we're hearing about the coronavirus from the president the way we heard about the Mueller report from Bill Barr. Not exactly from the horse's mouth, is it? Thank you so much. U.S. Congressman Ami Bari of California, Dr. Natalie Azar and Aaron Blake of the, of the Washington Post. Coming up, Joe Biden needs a victory in South Carolina this Saturday. And a new poll today shows he might just get that victory. Can he parlay that success on Saturday? It looks like he's going to have the Super Tuesday. He might be able to do that. Things are changing a bit in this Democratic fight for president. Plus, the Democrats haven't had a brokered convention since 1952. Could it happen again? And what happens if Bernie Sanders gets the most delegates but can't get the majority, which you need to clinch the nomination? He says whoever gets the most votes should win. But what about the rules? We've got much more to get to tonight. Stick with us.
Welcome back to Harbaugh. The South Carolina primary is two days away. It's a make or break moment, of course, for Vice Pre- former Vice President Joe Biden, who's staking his presidential run this year on a victory in the First in the South contest. A new Monmouth University poll out today shows him with a commanding lead at 36 percent. That's 20 points ahead of Senator Bernie Sanders down there in the Palmetto State, with, who's got 16 percent. Tom Steyer's got 15 percent. No other candidate in South Carolina's got even double digits. Well, the poll shows that Biden, with even a larger lead among African-Americans in that state, Biden has the support of 45 percent of black voters. He also he's followed, by the way, in that category by Steyer at 17 points and Sanders at 13. Steyer's doing better than Sanders among African-Americans. But as Biden puts most of his resources into South Carolina, he hasn't done any campaigning or much in Super Tuesday states in recent weeks. The New York Times reports the interviews with party leaders in half a dozen Super Tuesday states suggest that the same vulnerabilities that plagued Mr. Biden beginning in Iowa, subpar organization, limited outreach to local Democrats and a late start to campaigning are holding him back in the states that next week will dole out a third of the total delegates in the entire Democratic primaries. Even with those concerns, polls show there are a number of super Tuesday states that Biden could potentially win. For more, I'm joined by Trav Robertson, Democratic Party chair in South Carolina, Zelina Maxwell, senior director of progressive programming for Sears XM, and Howard Feynman, contributing correspondent for Real Politics. Real Clear Politics. You got so many hats, Howard. Thank you. No, really. I love Real Clear Politics. Let me go to Trav on this. South Carolina is fascinating. Uh, it's a fascinating state. It's part of the Deep South. It's the cotton culture. Right. Trav, tell us about. Uh, Biden's uh, comfort down. I just no. Let's do something for fun. Let's do something positive. We need positive news. Jim Clyburn strikes me as one of the last people on this planet, certainly in the United States, who really has the ability to endorse anything, even a product. But he could, looks like he's got some real street cred. Your thoughts? Well, we have 46 counties in South Carolina, Chris, and he has 18 of the 46 counties in his congressional district. And that's pretty, pretty significant as it is one of a a super minority majority districts in South Carolina. And so his endorsement does, in fact, carry a lot of weight. And then, you know, Congressman Joe Cuttingham, whose district adjoins uh, Congressman Clyburn's, has made uh, his uh, his statement as to the the what we want in South Carolina as opposed to socialism. So you've got both of our congressmen uh, actually speaking out in this particular primary. First in the South, Zarlina, what's it mean? I think it means that... Well, I mean... The majority, Sorry, the, go ahead. The, the majority black voters in South Carolina. I mean, that's when I joined the campaign, Chris, uh, because in 2016, the Hillary Clinton campaign understood that after that loss in New Hampshire, it was absolutely critical to perform well in Nevada and then subsequently South Carolina. So, you know, 60 percent of the electorate there is African-American. And what you're seeing here in some of this polling, I think, should be explained in this way. You're seeing a generational divide among African-Americans. Bernie Sanders does particularly well among African-Americans under the age of 40. Uh, But Joe Biden does a lot better with African-American women in particular, the church-going types of women, like my yeah. mom, uh, over 45. And that those are that's the base of the Democratic Party writ large, but especially in South Carolina, because those are the folks on the bus going souls to the polls. And so I want to hear your uh, family discussion. Give us a little taste. <laughs> what is because we have some of those in our family, too. Yeah. Tell me what's going on between mother and daughter, if you will, or at least from mother. Well, I've been having conversations with my 
my parents all year long trying to figure out, you know, where they uh, land on a, a large slate of candidates. Um, my dad talked about uh, Kamala Harris being his favorite, Julian Castro, his second favorite, um, and they're no longer in the race. And so now he's looking at this slate of candidates. He's very much opposed to Bernie Sanders. I would say that. Um, but I think that, you know, black people are under no illusions that a second term of Donald Trump would be worse than any of the possible Democrats that we have to choose from. So I think what Bernie Sanders can do, you know, in order to attract some of these older black voters is to articulate in detail how he's going to get us to Medicare for all how he's going to pay for it. He needs to make those folks feel comfortable because it's not so much about the label socialism as yeah. much as it's the fear of the unknown of what that even means and what it will do to, uh, you know, upend people's lives. I'd like to know they're going to get the 60 votes in the U.S. Senate, but that's yesterday. That's an insider's question. Let me ask you, Howard, about if Biden wins, does he have a chance to jump out? I was looking at some of these states where he's doing pretty well in like uh, Alabama, Tennessee. He's really strong. He could possibly win a handful of states coming out of it. Well, on Super Tuesday. Yes. And I think that will be based on the same history and the same experience as what's going on in Black South voters. Carolina. It's the Cotton South. It's the place where Martin Luther King and others fought for civil rights, where they were branded as communists for doing so, yeah. and where a generation of black voters got to become full participants, politically at least, and economically to a large extent, in that region. Those people remember that, and they also remember Barack Obama, and they remember that Joe Biden was a loyal and effective vice president for, for, uh, for Barack Obama, with Barack Obama. That vote is pretty solid for Joe Biden, and it's one that doesn't require that much organization on his part. You were talking about his lack of organization. I love it. That's still a push button. I think, Howard, you're so smart. You know, that's I mean, still Trav, a push let's button get thing. to that. Trav, let's get to this. <laughs> Some voters don't need encouragement. They don't need yeah. a polling operation. We all right. know what a polling operation is. That's when you send the car around. They get to right. the polls. They get to church on time. <laughs> they right. get to the polls on time. They're regular people with great family discipline. Uh, if you get older people, older African-Americans, older, any voter, really, older voters are much better at that. Your thoughts about South Carolina? Oh, I think you're exactly right. And and the truth is, is that Joe Biden's support appears to be extremely strong among older African-American voters in South Carolina. And the fascinating thing is, is I think that Bernie Sanders' emergence, as well as Tom Steyer's in South Carolina, has really forced the Biden campaign to actually uh, become a little more self-disciplined and invest a little more in an organization here to his benefit to make sure that those voters weren't just voting for him because of name ID, that they're actually with him 100 percent. And I think you you can actually feel on the ground here the, the actual uh, momentum that his campaign is receiving and getting and the Sanders campaign and the Steyer campaign, too. But you've got Elizabeth well, Warren waiting in the wings. She's had a staff on the ground for a very long time here. Really? Let me go to Mike Bloomberg. That question, well, he'll be on the ballot this uh, Saturday. He's going to be on the ballot. He's going to make his debut on Super Tuesday, rather. He won't be on the ballot this Saturday. Right. He's been waiting. He's coming up next Tuesday, we hear. He's already spent $172 million blanketing the airwaves in the states that are voting on next Tuesday. But all that spending may not be enough to help the former New York mayor, who has started to see his rise in the polls, stall after his performance on last week's Las Vegas debate. Politico is reporting, for example, that several sources close to and involved in the campaign of Mike Bloomberg have acknowledged concerns about his recent internal and public point. Zerlina, let's take a look at that. You're on the air all the time about this. Uh, 
Is there a point of diminishing returns with spending money? I've always wondered if you just had a zillion dollars, could you be the next president just because you put the ads on the air? Is there a point where people say, I get it. I've seen the ad. I'm voting for somebody else. I I think there is a diminishing return. And I say that as a former organizer for President Obama. And the reason why is because advertisements is, you know, when you get close to election time, particularly in those battleground states and those folks who are watching know this is true. Every single commercial is a political advertisement. So at a certain point, you're just, you know, going to the kitchen to get your snacks uh, during yeah. these political advertisements. So the impact, I do think, um, are diminishing. His, his Barack Obama advertisements and the radio advertisements were particularly effective because they were in Barack Obama's voice. And so a lot of folks were mistaken thinking that President Obama had endorsed Michael Bloomberg. Now that that is very yeah. much cleared up and wasn't the case in the first instance, I think folks are looking at his record. And stop and frisk the Central Park Five, exonerated five rather, yeah. uh, and other issues. His uh, the NDA issue. I think that Elizabeth Warren bringing out some of those vulnerabilities. Um, it a lot of people I think are taking a second look uh, and re-examining whether or not he's he would be a good choice. I think that that argument uh, was pretty persuasive, and I'm interested to see if on Super Tuesday, uh, in those states that he's in second place, uh, Elizabeth Warren may supplant him in some of those states. In my opinion, it's just a prediction. Um, she has a lot of staff on the ground all over, so I'm curious to see if she can take advantage, since she was the one to bring out so many of those vulnerabilities. Yeah, Howard, there must be a lot of conversation. Go ahead. I'm sorry, Trav. Go ahead. Uh, No, no. I think the caveat to that, I was in Oklahoma several weeks ago for a wedding, and I just happened to stop by two of Bloomberg's events. And, and, you know, there were 750 people that showed up to one, 250 people showed up to another one. But my question is this. I believe Elizabeth Warren did some serious damage to him, but he's participating in areas that have seen no candidate for president, and that's going to benefit him, I think. Okay, thank you. Howard, quickly, quickly. Can he get through this? He's had two miserable debates. Mike Bloomberg. Oh, I I think he's been badly (laughs) damaged. In a way, all the money that you spend can double back on you whiplash style if you don't deliver in person. You have to look like your ads. You have to look like your ads, and he didn't. He hasn't in either, either debate. Uh, it's been really, it's been rough treatment, too. But anyway, apparently he's going to have a hard time every single one of these debates. Trav Robertson, thank you, Zerlina Maxwell, and thank you, Howard Feynman. A quick programming note, I'm heading to South Carolina tomorrow ahead of this week's primary. Hardball will be live 7 o'clock Eastern tomorrow night, broadcasting from Home Team Barbecue. I like North Carolina barbecue. Let's taste. Uh, let's see what the other kinds like in Charleston. I'll be back there on Saturday at 5 p.m. Eastern for a special coverage of the South Carolina primary. I did go to UNC. Up next, some Democrats are in a full-fledged panic. The thought of Bernie Sanders at the top of the ticket. We know that, but could efforts to keep him from getting the nomination be even more destructive, more disruptive, and create even more chaos than letting him win because he's got the most delegates? You're watching Hardball. If I or anybody else goes into the Democratic convention with a substantial plurality, I believe that individual, me or anybody else, should be the candidate of the Democratic Party. And if one candidate comes out on top to say to the country, you voted for that candidate, oh, but by the way, we don't think that candidate should be the nominee. I think that will be a serious, serious problem for the Democratic Party. 
Wow. Welcome back to Harvard. That was Bernie Sanders, who's not actually a member of the party yet, at least not yet, arguing again this week that the candidate with the most delegates heading into the convention this summer should become the party's nominee. In all fairness, he said a substantial plurality, a substantial plurality. In other words, up to the high 30s or 40s. However, to secure the Democratic nomination, a candidate must win a majority of the delegates. That's the rules that are for grabs during the primary season. Even if a candidate has more delegates than anyone else, they're not guaranteed the nomination unless they reach that magic number of half, half the delegates available. Those are the rules. And House Speaker Nancy Pelosi made clear today that the party's going to stick by those rules. The rules are very clear. The person who will be nominated will be the person who has a majority plus one. That may happen before they even get to the convention. But we'll see. If Senator Sanders or any candidate falls short of a majority, the Democrats would have to duke it out in an open convention in Milwaukee. And that means party officials would be allowed to cast votes as so-called superdelegates beginning with the second ballot. Now, The New York Times has interviewed 93 of those superdelegates reporting that they, quote, found overwhelming opposition to handing the Vermont Senator the nomination if he arrived with the most delegates but fell short of a majority. They are not just worried about Mr. Sanders' candidacy, but they're also they're also willing to risk intra-party damage to stop his nomination, according to the interviews with The Times. In other words, if Sanders doesn't win outright, will he have a tough time emerging? And while Sanders continues to question the rules guiding the process, one of his opponents says he's challenging the rules that he himself wrote. And that's coming up next. You're watching Hardball. Should the person with the most delegates at the end of this primary season be the nominee, even if they are short of a majority? I think that the will of the people should prevail. Yes. Thank you, guys. Most votes should become the nominee. Welcome back to Harvard. That's Senator Sanders arguing that the candidate with the most delegates should win the nomination, even if the rules make clear that you need a majority of the delegates to become the Democratic nominee. As Senator Elizabeth Warren pointed out last night, Sanders is now challenging the rules, even though he helped to write them back in 2016. Here she goes. Can you explain why the will of the voters should not matter if no candidate reaches a majority of delegates? So you do know that was Bernie's position in 2016. Not necessarily, no. Yeah. The way I see this is you write the rules before you know where everybody stands, and then you stick with those rules. Those are the rules that he wanted to write and others wanted to write. Everybody got in the race thinking that was the set of rules. I don't see how come you get to change it just because he now thinks there's an advantage to him for doing that. I'm joined now by former Democratic senator from Indiana, Joe Donnelly, and Michelle Goldberg, who writes a great column for The New York Times. I'll let you start, Michelle. What is your position? Should it be majority of the delegates or the plurality of the delegates that gives the winner the win? Well, I think Bernie is right when he said substantial plurality, right? I could un- and before I say anything, you know, full disclosure, my husband is consulting for Elizabeth Warren. But I think in this particular case, I think that to— if Bernie What's a comes substantial in, majority? Forty-five percent. What would you give us a, a guesstimate? What's a f- substantial majority? I don't plurality? know. You know, I don't know off the top of my head, but I think you know if, if it's if it's not just kind of one or two points ahead of the next person, you know, the next runner-up. I think if it's pretty clear who's gotten the most votes, then not even. 
and to me, this isn't even about fairness. It's about winning. It's about what it would do to the party if you kind of told Bernie's voters that having won a substantial plurality, we're going to kind of go into a back room or go into some sort of, you know, DNC process. They already have a lot of paranoia and distrust about the yeah. DNC and the Democratic Party. I think you would shatter the party. You would cleave off these young people who are the future of the party and possibly disillusion them for years into the future. I think Bernie is a really risky general election candidate, and I've written a lot about my concerns about his electability. But the candidate who comes out of a process that alienates that 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 substantial a part of the party, I think, is even less electable. I heard every word you said, Senator. Well, there are rules and there's a reason that we have rules is that you follow them and that's how it's done. What are done. the reasons for the rules of majority? It has to be a majority of the delegates. What's the point of that? Well, Bernie Sanders helped put those in but place. But what's the point of that? The point of that is to make sure somebody has 50 percent plus one, that you're not close. So, in, for instance, if you're in a softball game in the third inning, you're feeling pretty good. It's like, let's end at the seventh. No, you play this out and you get a majority. And what the, the supporters of every candidate need to know is, look, do you want to beat Donald Trump and change our country? Or do you want to simply say, if I don't get what I want, I take and pack my bag and go home? That's a, that's the political argument. What about this? I thought for both of you that the reason we had these rules all these years for a lot of the Democratic Party. Uh, Michelle, I'll start with you again. The Democratic Party was never a party of harmony. It wasn't a part <laughs> the North and the South. There was the northern liberals from the big cities, of course, a lot of ethnic groups involved. We know that rich diversity of the party. Then there was the Southern conservatives, the segregationists, in fact. And the, the way they put it together was says, we're never going to ram anybody down your throat. We're going to have to have it, it for a long time it was two thirds majority. You know, that was the way they kept the party together. So they would put mild mannered liberals like, you know, Adlai Stevenson and take with Sparkman as his running mate. You know how they did it in the old mm -hmm. days, and they did it with Johnson and Kennedy. They always had to build a bridge. And is that why it's good to have the 50 percent? I'm just asking. Does that make sense? That's why they did it that way. Well, I think it makes sense that that's why they did it that way. But I think that you have, you know, now a couple of generations who have the expectation that the candidate's going to be democratically elected, right? So brokered conventions were not such a sort of, you know, freakish thing yeah. in the past that would rend the party because they had some legitimacy. I think that even though it has legitimacy now under the rules, a lot of voters would not regard it as a legitimate process. I can see what can happen. Senator, it'll drive you crazy. Michelle might live with it. I don't know. I, I might live with it. How about this? Bernie gets 37 percent of the delegates. Elizabeth Warren gets 13 percent. That's up to 50. And they, that's your so-called. And he's the nominee and she's the VP nominee. That's exactly I can see right. That that's, happening. that's how this works is you need to get a majority. Yeah. And it brings people together as well. And so what we have to do is be aware of the fact that everybody's vote counts. And in this process, as you look at it, um, you can't say, I'm ahead. Let's call a game right now. You play it out till it concludes. And so Bernie has a lead now. He may have a very significant lead near the near the end of the convention time. And then he gets together with an Elizabeth or with somebody else yeah. and goes over the top. That's how this is done. Mm -hmm. But you can't say you want certain rules in 2018 and then have completely different rules in 2020 because they favor you. And it's a good lesson for supporters. You don't always get what you want simply because so you're not afraid of a walkout by the Bernie people if they don't get the nomination in that situation? Well, I'd be I'd be looking at them going, really, it's time to grow up that what you have to do is you fight for what you believe in. If you don't do you know get what, what you want like at to them, the moment, it's a 20 some year old. 
grow up. That's a, little, that's a way to win their hearts. Anyway, I, well, I know. Thank it's, you. it's what I say to my kids every day. Well, they're not your kids. Anyway, thank you so much. Michelle, you're great. I love your comp. Thank you. Uh, former Senator Joe Donnelly, Notre Dame guy. Michelle. What, not Michelle. I was going to say something like um, Hoosier. There you go. You're a Hoosier. Anyway, up next, no dissent allowed. The party of Trump boos the name Mitt Romney after the Republican Senate was disinvited from this year's CPAC conservative gathering. The bizarre scene from the conservative summit coming up next. Stick around for the show. You're watching Hardball. Welcome back to Harbaugh. Last month, 2012 Republican presidential nominee Mitt Romney was officially uninvited from the annual Conservative Political Action Conference after he voted to allow witnesses in Trump's impeachment trial. And that was before he voted to convict Trump on one of the articles of impeachment. At the time, CPAC chair Matt Schlapp said Romney was disinvited because, well, Schlapp was worried about his physical safety. We won't credential him as a conservative. I suppose if he wants to come as a non-conservative and debate an issue with us, maybe in the future we would have him come. This year, uh, I would actually be afraid for his physical safety. People are so mad at him. Well, today's crowd at CPAC made it clear that this is the party of Trump and anyone else is persona non grata. The Republican Party of Mitt Romney. Correct answer, by the way. Correct. Every time his name is mentioned, you should respond that way. Because he lied to every single person in this room that knocked on doors for him, that made phone calls for him, that donated his campaign. Because we thought that he was going to be a crusader against the Marxist president that preceded Donald Trump. And now he asks and he begs for the endorsement of Donald Trump for the Senate in Utah. And then he goes and votes for that sham unconstitutional impeachment. He embodies the very same political class that President Trump ran against. Barack Obama was a Marxist. I'm joined now by Republican strategist Susan Del Persia. I think that that shot at a moderate, moderate Democrat. <laughs> Barack Obama yeah. being a Marxist puts the sort of the axis of where the CPAC convention is. It's a pretty right wing crowd, but now it's become sort of a Trump crowd, not normally ideological now, just a cult, it seems. That's Your right. Thoughts. I mean, Chris, you and I both remember in the, in the 80s, CPAC was a place where, sure, there were some fringe players, but there was a place of ideas. They were conservative ideas. You didn't have to agree with them, but they were well thought out, and we respected each other on both sides of the aisle. What I saw just now is a disgrace. Let's not forget when this time four years ago, when Donald Trump was running for president, he came in third at CPAC with 15 percent of the vote behind Ted Cruz's 40 percent and Marco Rubio's Rubio's 30 percent. So it certainly is a different place. And I guess what Kellyanne Conway said in 2017 is right. They're going to change the the name of it from CPAC to TPAC, and they might as well make it the party of Trump. They have now shown that they have no values, no standards and no political beliefs. What happened to all those young Americans for freedom? All those people who believed in free trade. They believe in a limited power for the executive. They believe Congress should make the calls. It was very constitutional. Uh, They had very strong principles about limited government. 
And now they've got Trump to defend. It's a totally 180 from all those principles of Jeffersonian limitations on power. Well, if you look at the Is current... that too obvious to say this? I don't know. <laughs> well, well, look, look who's, who's in the Senate and in the House right now. Look how they have fallen off the wagon of what was good, principled Republican and conservative ideas and principles. So it's not surprising to see some of the younger people coming up and throwing things out the window because they don't know what it means to actually have core values, Chris. And that's what we're missing. That's why when we hear about certain extremes, whether it's these folks at CPAC and Donald Trump and to an extent Bernie Sanders going off in a Democrat as a Democratic socialist, people don't want to hear a a complete uh, revolution against government. They want to hear about working together, getting things done, disagreeing on ideas for the betterment of our society. Well, this coronavirus would be a great case of us all working together. Unfortunately, we're not, thanks uh, to the president anyway, and, and other politicians, too. Anyway, yeah. Vice President Pence was one of today's speakers at CSPAC, and he, of course, had nothing but glowing praise for the president. Four years ago, a movement was born, a movement of everyday Americans from every walk of life, from big cities and small towns. All of you here at CPAC believe we could be strong again. You believe we could be prosperous again. You here at CPAC said yes to President Donald Trump in 2016, and I know you're going to say yes to four more years of President Donald Trump in 2020. Ronald Reagan said it was morning in America, and President Donald Trump made America great again. Wow. He sounds more like a high priest than a politician. Yeah. And and Mike Pence needs to be careful because he has now been set up for the full blame of this country not being prepared for the coronavirus to fall on him. President Trump said, you're in charge, Mike Pence. And Mike Pence can't just go out there and trot the lines of the president. This is an important part. Mm, Is this a game? Is he sticking him out there? He I think so. I think that's the easiest thing to to do. Is this to make room for Nikki Haley? I don't know if it's to make room for Nikki Haley, but I know that President Trump takes no responsibility for anything, and Haley's willing to put it on anyone, even those who have been loyal to him. Thanks so much, Susan Thanks Del Percio. You're a tough, tough person, <laughs> but I love it. All right. Up next, you're supposed to be. Anyway, up next, Donald Trump once again opts to divide the country instead of uniting it, this time against a common foe, the coronavirus. Why is he dividing us over something that could hurt us all? Is that too obvious? You're watching a hardball. The coronavirus offers a chance for this country to get its act together, confronting its spread in an honest fashion, doing what can be done to contain it, to treat people who become infected, could all be the kind of challenge that elevates this country to its best. In other words, when we got together and used the full power of an effective government to meet the common challenge. Why can't President Trump see it this way? Why does he see the coronavirus as an opportunity to once again divide the country, not unite it? Yesterday, he blamed the stock market drops of Monday and Tuesday on Tuesday night's Democratic debate, not market concerns about the coronavirus. I think the financial markets are very upset when they look at the Democrat candidate standing on that stage making fools out of themselves. And they say, if we ever have a president like this, and there's always a possibility, it's an election, you know, who knows what happens, right? I think we're going to win. I think we're going to win by a lot. 
But when they look at the statements made by the people stand behind, standing behind those podiums, I think that has a huge effect. Why would he say something that's impossible? It makes no logical sense. How can what happened on Tuesday night have caused what happened on Monday and Tuesday during the daytime? Why say something that a reasonable person would see as ridiculous? And that's been a real problem with Trump. Polls show a majority of registered voters now giving the president a very poor rating. That's the phrase, very poor on being honest and trustworthy. And that's not a good situation for him, but more so for the country. There are times and events like the threat of the coronavirus when we need to trust what government health officials are saying. And that includes the person at the top. This isn't about the crowd size at his inauguration. And that's hardball for now. Tonight on a 